Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, Romans 14 from verse 1 to Romans 15, verse 13. Accept the ones whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully uh, convinced in their own mind, whoever regards one day as special, so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to, or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other, that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, pray together, shall we, as we come to look at uh, these verses from the Bible. Paul says in chapter 15, verse 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Father, thank you that through the gospel you've called us into a new relationship with you and with one another. Thank you that we are family together in Jesus. We know that sometimes that isn't easy, but we ask and pray that as we look at these verses together, we might learn what it is to accept one another as Christ has accepted us, that we might live as a community to your praise and glory. Amen. Well, do keep that passage open. It's a big passage. We're not going to be able to look at everything in there, but I hope we'll get a feel for what Paul has to say to us uh, this morning. I don't know whether you've been following the life of uh, Kanye West in more recent months, if you don't even know who I'm talking about. This is a, a picture of, of Kanye. He sold 140 million uh, albums. I haven't bought one of them. He's uh, won 21 Grammys. Uh, in 2005, Time magazine voted him as one of the most, one of the hundred most influential people in the world in 2005. And 10 years later, they were saying the same. He was still in their top 100 in 2015. But in the last six months to a year or so, he's Uh, declared himself to be a Christian, to be born again, even going so far as in the last month to have released an album by the uh, title Jesus is King, went straight to number one in the American Billboard charts. And in an interview, uh, Kanye said this, he said, I have given my life to Jesus Christ and I work for God. In a TV interview with Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel asked him, would you consider yourself to be a Christian music artist now? And Kanye said this profound uh, words, I'm just a Christian everything. I'm not a Christian recording artist, I'm a Christian everything. And that's the kind of answer that gives me a sense of hope that maybe he really has come to faith in Jesus Christ. There seem to be encouraging signs And we do well to pray for him as he comes under that media spotlight. A Christian everything, is that you? I think what Paul is saying to us in this book of Romans is that the more we understand what Jesus has done for us, and the deeper we reflect on it, the more we see how it impacts everything in our lives. That's what we've seen all the way along, haven't we? Just turn back a couple of pages to Romans 12 and verse 1, that pivotal verse where Paul concludes his kind of summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ and answers the so what question. 
Chapter 12, verse 1. So what if this is true? So what if you believe that Jesus has died for your sins and given you new life in him? Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What do you do when you've really understood the gospel? You, you offer yourselves back to God. I'm a Christian everything. C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's his paraphrase of Romans 12, verse 1, really, isn't it? And from that central idea, that if Jesus has died for me, then my whole life is given to him, from that central idea, we start to say, I'm a Christian everything. And we say, all of my life, Jesus, is now for you. But it takes time and a degree of effort to work out what that might mean. It's not like a, a Microsoft download onto your PC that just updates everything without you even thinking about it. I'd love it if it were the case that suddenly the day I became a Christian, everything just changed, but it didn't. You don't wake up one day knowing exactly what to do with every part of your life what it means to be a a Christian husband or a parent or a boss at work. I remember a student once asking me, look, as a Christian, how should I celebrate scoring a goal in hockey? It's a really good question, isn't it? Another Christian who rang me up from a taxi and said, I've got to make one of two people, I've got to fire one of two people tomorrow. Can you give me some advice? How do I go about doing that? The moment the gospel impacts your life, it starts to raise all sorts of questions And we have to go digging for the answer. Because look what Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 12. If you're a Christian, everything, how is it going to work? Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's going to take time. It's going to take some thought. As we let the gospel sink in, we're going to start to see things differently and the gospel is going to change everything. So in chapter 12, Paul started unpacking what might that look like in our relationships in the church. A new priority to love and serve other Christians, which brings me back week in, week out to be at church to bless others. Or chapter 13, what's it going to mean in terms of how I think about governments and those in authority? And now in chapter 14 and 15... Paul is going to get, let the gospel sink in. He's going to renew our mind by showing us that Christian unity in the church comes through a deep reflection on the gospel. If you want to preserve and protect and promote unity in the church, you're going to have to think about it through the renewing of your mind. Read through Paul's letters and you'll find that time and again, the challenges that Paul meets within the churches are helping Christians to stick to the truth and to stick together. Maybe you know those opening chapters of uh, 1 Corinthians where the church in Corinth is divided between those who say, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Jesus. It's a real struggle. To stay together, to serve together, to grow together. Paul had to say to the two, uh, in the letter of, to the Philippians, he had to challenge two particular women. I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind 
in the Lord. It's not easy. It's going to take the gospel to keep us united. As a church, we've been blessed over 20 years to experience a great deal of gospel unity. But it wouldn't take much, you know, for that to unravel. It really wouldn't. And some of you have seen that happen in other churches. Christians can be selfish. Christians can be self-righteous. Christians can be unwise and foolish. We can be high-minded and judgmental. And as a result, churches have split over the smallest of issues. And the Bible is full of examples of Christians struggling to live together. So if we're going to be Christian everything, then one of the challenges is how do you get on with people who think differently from you on certain matters? And that's where we get to chapters 14 and 15, the relationships between Christians in the church. Now, the particular situation here is of two communities who have never mixed together in the world being brought into one family in the church. We're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles who found faith in Jesus. They never, ever mixed in the world. And now they're brothers and sisters in the church. Jewish Christians with all of their history, their traditions and their practices were now members of a new family with Gentile believers who had none of those things. Just think for a moment, would you? For over a thousand years, Jews and Gentiles did not mix. A thousand years. And not just because they didn't get on, because God's word in the Old Testament meant that the Jews had to keep themselves apart. It was the very law of God in the Old Testament that meant that they did not mix. But now in Christ, they're one new people. And look, here's the great encouragement for us. If Paul says it's possible for Jewish and Gentile believers to get on well after a thousand years of separation... If the gospel can bring them together to be one united church in Jesus Christ, the gospel can bring you and me together, no matter what our backgrounds, no matter what our class or ethnicity or football team or whatever else it might be, we're one in Christ and the gospel can help us stay together to the glory of God. So let me say a few things that I think will help us just navigate our way around this passage a little bit. Things that we have to get our heads around. Did you notice, firstly, that Paul talks about the strong and the weak? Did you spot that as it was being read? Well, let me say, firstly, what weak doesn't mean. Weak doesn't mean weak in faith. He's not talking about wobbly Christians doubting what uh, they believe about Jesus. No, weak here is a reference to those who doubted that they could do certain things as Christians, such as eating, eating meat that had been sold in a marketplace, sold at a butcher's, but the butcher had sourced that meat probably from a sacrifice made in a pagan temple. And the weak were the Jewish believers who thought, well, I'm, that, would, that would be tantamount to idolatry, to eat a burger knowing that that meat had first come from an animal sacrificed in a pagan temple. So they were weak about whether they could eat meat. And they were weak about how they regarded certain holy days and special days and so on. So John Stott says, weak means not a vulnerable Christian, easily overcome by temptation, 
but a sensitive Christian, full of scruples. So think about it today. If someone became a Christian from a Muslim background, they may not want to drink alcohol or eat pork. That's the sort of thing that we might be thinking about. Someone who maybe comes from a church culture where Sunday is a special day or a Sabbath day to the Lord, holy to the Lord, they may not want to join you in playing sport on a Sunday. They may not want to go out for a meal on a Sunday because a chef has to work and and waiters and waitresses and so on, and they want to reserve and keep Sunday special. Those are the weak. Well, the strong in Romans are those who don't see a problem with these kind of things. And in Romans 14 and 15, the weak were the Jewish believers and the strong were the Gentile believers. In a church community like this, what divides us, what sensitivities we have, may not owe their origins to ethnic differences between us, Jew and Gentile, but, but other things. Just other things. The strong in Romans are those who don't see a problem. The weak are those who do, but not about their love for Jesus. They all love Jesus. Just some of them think you shouldn't go and see an 18 film. Some of them think we shouldn't be using drums in worship or guitars or whatever else it may be. You know, these are the kind of things we're talking about. Second thing to note as we go along. Paul knows where he stands in the debate. And he goes out of his way to tell us. So sometimes you think, yeah, I get the idea. What you're saying, Neil, is that Christians sometimes can't agree on things and it's okay if we're not sure what the Bible says. Well, that's not what's happening in this passage. In this passage, Paul says, look, I know exactly where I stand. He's clear that the weak haven't fully understood the freedoms that they, they have. And we'll see that in a minute. So he's not talking about things where you think, hmm, I wonder what the Bible really says. Well, maybe no one knows. No, he's talking about stuff where he says, I know exactly what the Bible says. But I'm sensitive to the sensitivities of those who perhaps haven't fully understood the implications of the gospel and the freedoms that they have. And he's going to tell us, I know where I stand. Thirdly, the strong seem to be the majority in this church. They've just got the numbers on their side. Boris Johnson was hamstrung, wasn't he? He didn't have the numbers. Couldn't get any, make anything happen. Here, well, the strong seem to be sure of what the Bible says, and Paul's going to back them up, and they have the greatest numbers they could just basically push it through, couldn't they? Get the church to do what they wanted to do. And yet Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how we behave and live towards one another. That's something, just three things uh, to note. I think the third one is more, more hinted at. The first two, I think, are very clearly there in the passage. They could have said, Paul could have said, let's go with the majority. But Paul says something really important, doesn't he? He says, look, On an issue as a Christian, even when you know you're in the right, and even when you know you're in the majority, there's something more important at stake. There's something bigger at stake. It's called gospel unity. That is where God's glory is revealed in the church as we defer to one another and prefer one another and serve one another and put aside our interests for the sake of the glory of the church. One new community, one new family in Jesus Christ. The gospel is bigger than our theological differences. And we need to get first things first. That's what Paul is saying to us in a passage like this. 
And I want us to see, do you remember chapter 12 and verse 2? It's through the renewing of our minds that we can ensure that our unity stays strong. What I want to do in my remaining time is give you the three gospel principles that run through this passage that need to stick in your minds to help you to know how to respond when you disagree with another Christian on something. So gospel principle number one. Do you have the Bible open with with me, would you? We are to accept one another because that's the only foundation for faith. It's second nature to focus on difference and actually to use different as a way of preferring ourselves or seeing ourselves in a better light. Even Christians can be consumed with wanting to show we're better than the next person. And we use it to put people down. We're not good at accepting one another. Uh, My guilty TV secret is The Apprentice, okay? That's my guilty secret. 16 people, or is it 18? I forget now. Battling it out to prove that they're better than the rest. Week by week, the contestants are divided into two teams where they have to work together in a task and Lord Sugar has set for them and they're consumed with proving that they're the best whether they win or whether they lose. So Lottie Lyon, she's uh, one of the irritants in this year's uh, program. Lottie Lyon said in the boardroom this week, Lord Sugar, I am not naive to the fact that I don't get on with everyone. My aim is not to get on with everybody. My aim is to make myself a success. Now, that's just our culture, isn't it? I mean, she may be putting it a bit more brashly than you would, but I think that's the reality in many workplaces, in many uh, communities, in many uh, hockey or football teams or whatever else it might be. I'm kind of playing for the team, but I'm actually about making myself a success. And that at the expense of others. We need to take care that the church isn't a version of the apprentice. We work in teams, but only so that I might make myself a success. No, it's time to renew our minds with the gospel. So look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak. Remember, not a wobbly Christian, but just a sensitive Christian on some things. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. You both love Jesus. You think differently about the details. But you really do love Jesus. Don't quarrel on these kind of disputes. Look at chapter 14, verse 1, except one another. Would you look now at chapter 15 and verse 7, where the argument kind of ends. They're the bookends of the argument. What does chapter 15, verse 7 say? The same thing. Accept one another just as Christ Jesus accepted you. It's exactly the same Greek word in chapter 14, verse 1, and 15, verse 7. If you like, it's the key word, the bookends of the the section. And accept is a bit of a, well, it's a bit of a soft translation. It doesn't really do it justice, and there are sort of better translations on that word, I think. A better term would actually be welcome. Welcome one another. The message, which is kind of helpful for a paraphrase, it's not a Bible you want to uh, use as your only version, but it can be helpful sometimes. The message paraphrase puts it this way. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says this, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. Do you like that? I like that. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. I guess that means welcome them into your home, welcome them into your heart, 
welcome them when you gather at church. And verse 1 says, do it without reservation. In other words, do it without passing judgment when it comes to disputable matters. The kind of things that Christians will think differently about. You don't welcome people when they disagree about who Jesus is and whether he really rose again from the dead. No, the gospel says it's really important to protect gospel unity that you don't welcome in people who say wrong things about Jesus that are clearly contrary to the gospel. But it's really important that you do welcome in people who love Jesus but maybe disagree on these disputable matters. Welcome them without regard without it even entering your mind what your view is on baptism or the exact roles of men and women women in the church or spiritual gifts or whatever else it might be. Why should you behave that way? Because as we read in chapter 15, verse 7, that is how Christ accepted you. Remember the parable of the prodigal son where the father runs to his son with open arms to welcome him back home. Well, that's how God has welcomed you. Without hesitation, without reservation, without quarreling with you over disputable matters. In fact, he welcomed you even when you were an enemy, when you turned back to him. How much more should we welcome fellow brothers and sisters into church? We're all on the welcome team. Who's on the welcome team today? Can you put a hand up? We're all on it. Can we all put our hands up, please? Thank you. Some of you get it. Some of you are still having your minds renewed because it was a late night. (laughs) We're all on the welcome team with open arms because that's how Christ welcomed you. Accept one another. That's how the gospel is renewing your mind as you see someone you haven't met before come into church. See, God has accepted them, verses 2 and 3. The strong eat all foods, 14 verse 2. The weak, well, maybe they only eat vegetables. They're a bit unsure about meat, where it's come from. They think it might have been sacrificed to an idol. So the strong attempted to look down on the weak. And to look down means to reject with contempt. And in turn, the weak condemn the strong. Uh, You're not godly enough to understand we shouldn't be eating some things. But we step back and say, look, if God has accepted them... I accept them. 2020 Birmingham is part of our sort of church planting initiative that we're involved with. We're trying to work with other gospel churches to plant 20 churches in 10 years. And sometimes people say, how do you decide who to work with? It's a good question, isn't it? How do you decide who you can work with? And our answer is always, we're as generous as the gospel allows us to be. We're as generous as the gospel allows us to be. So another way of putting it is if if I've come to a settled conviction that I will be rejoicing with this brother in heaven, that we're going to be in heaven together, he's a real Christian, If, if I'm rejoicing with him in heaven, then I'm ready to work with him on earth. I think that's what it means. That's what I say. You know, sometimes you have to meet with someone for a cup of coffee a few times because you've never met them before and they come from a different culture and country and you're not sure what you believe. But if you decide, yeah, we're going to be in heaven together, you're a real Christian. If I'm going to be rejoicing with you in heaven, I'm going to work with you on earth. And that's how it ought to be in our church family. may come from different tribes and denominations. They may be part of a church that personally I wouldn't want to be a part of. 
because the music's too loud or they stand up too long or they baptize people in the wrong way. But, but you know, if we are rejoicing with each other in heaven, we're going to work together here on earth. John Stotts puts it in this sobering way. He says, how dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? That's the challenge, isn't it? Think what you do when you fall out with someone. How dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, Stott says, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's God's attitude to them is. Treat them as God treats them. It's as simple as that. So over tea and coffee this morning, you have an opportunity to demonstrate the power of the gospel as you go out of your way to welcome people and to be welcomed by people. Or how about next Sunday choosing to sit down next to someone you don't know? Or choosing to sit next to someone who is very different from you. So if you're a student... Why not deliberately sit down next week with someone who looks as if they might be retired? And if they tell you they're still working, I'm sure they won't be offended. But if they look old to you, that's okay. Just sit next to someone who's different. Okay? And just say, this is the gospel. This is great. This is how it should be. The second gospel motivation is not just accepting people because God has welcomed them. The second motivation helps us when we say, but they're still wrong in what they think about certain things. And that is, Jesus is their judge and not you. You see that in verses 4 and following of chapter 14? The reason you can accept someone is because, well, let God be their judge. I mean, you might want to talk about what you believe on things, but if you come to a different conclusion, well, don't worry about it. You're not their judge. God is. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? Paul says, to their own master, servants stand and fall, and they will stand, because we're talking about genuine believers. So the weaker brothers and sisters were abstaining from eating meat to the Lord. Their tender conscience meant they shouldn't do it. Paul is very clear. He disagrees with them. Do you see that in verse 14? I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But Paul says, but I'm not going to judge them. Their judge is Jesus, not me. I don't need to do that. Verse 10, why do you judge them? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's a liberating truth. I don't have to be judge and jury. So I need to be renewed by, the, by having my thinking changed. If God accepts them, I'm going to accept them. If we disagree over something, at the end of the day, they have to give an account to Jesus for that and not me, so I'm not going to worry about that either. How does the gospel help us in our attitudes to one another? That's what these verses are helping us get to grips with. So the first thing I want to do on a Sunday morning when I walk through those doors is if God's accepted them, I want to show them just how welcome they really are. We may look different, we may dress differently, we may prefer different food, we may speak a different first language, we may have different views on what we should watch on TV, or how much a Christian should spend on a holiday, or how many times we should be singing that song, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And I'm not going to get things out of proportion. 
I'm not going to categorize or pigeonhole or divide people. I'm going to protect and preserve the unity of the church because my mind's alive with the gospel. I'm going to welcome them as much as Jesus welcomes them. But Paul isn't uh, finished. He then wants to go on to say his second gospel motivation in verses 13 and following. Not just welcome them, but pursue peace and the building up of other Christians. Pursue peace. Go out of your way. So verse 13, let us not stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now, there are all sorts of stumbling blocks and all sorts of obstacles in our house. Many of them are bits of Lego that my, uh, my boys have left on the floor. And sometimes just getting from A to B in our home can feel like tackling an assault course, tripping over a football, whatever, a bag or something else. And Paul says, you know, we could be like that in church, you know, causing problems for one another, putting up obstacles, making things difficult. So for us as a church, we've decided, for example, that on the secondary issues, even though we know what we believe as a church, and you'll find them in our doctrinal distinctives, our views on the Lord's Supper, on baptism, the role of men and women, spiritual gifts, all sorts of things, we know what we believe as church. We are going to say someone can become a fully functioning member of the church even if they disagree with the church's view on all of those issues. So our statement of faith is what unites us. That's something on which everyone has to agree. But we're going to put no obstacles. We're not going to say to you, but if you don't believe what we believe on baptism, you can't become a member. Or the Lord's Supper or spiritual gifts or whatever else it may be. We're putting them all in the category of this disputable matters. Not because we don't know what we think. We really do. The elders have to agree with all of those doctrinal distinctives, but nobody else. You can be a deacon and disagree with every one of them. Because we want everyone to have every opportunity to be a fully functioning member of this church. We're not going to put obstacles in the way. We're not creating barriers. We're going to try and make life as easy as we can for everyone to feel fully included and fully welcome. Now, my, at university, I shared a room with a guy for a year. He kept his half of the room meticulously tidy. Not me on my side. And the reason he kept his side of the room tidy was in part because his dad was blind. And his dad had been blind all... He'd been actually uh, a photographer, reconnaissance photographer in the Second World War. And uh, the plane crash landed and he lost his sight. So my friend at university, all of his life, had had to keep everything very carefully in its right place. Because dad couldn't see. And he just didn't want to put an obstacle there. He didn't want his dad tripping over something that he just couldn't have expected to be there. He was going out of his way, and that's how he lived his life. No stumbling blocks, no obstacles. And that's what it needs to be like for us as church. So Paul went this far in 1 Corinthians chapter 18. He said, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. If if it was a problem of somebody else's conscience... I wouldn't ever, ever do it. Even though I know I'm free to do it, I do not want to cause a problem for my brother. Because verse 17, the kingdom of God isn't really a matter of food, is it? But of righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. 
So we need as a church to go out of our way to do all that we can to attract anyone who's a Christian to feel that they can become part of the family here. Of course, we need to go out of our way in every way that we can to make sure that everyone feels welcome to come Sunday by Sunday, not putting obstacles from anyone, just coming and finding out more about Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I hope you've been made welcome to feel this is a great place to come to find out more. And I hope as you see God's people relating to one another, that that might be one of the reasons why you think maybe there's something in Christianity. These people love one another and they serve one another and they put in each other's interests ahead of their own. They accept one another because they've been accepted by God. So look, the songs we sing don't always have to be your favorite song. And let's invite people to pray according to their personality. There isn't a formula and a rote way to pray. Let's people pray as God has gifted them to pray in their own cultural context and their own character as well. Let's prioritize difference and celebrate it and develop cross-cultural friendships in the best ways that we can. That spirit of inclusion. Because we say this is how God's people need and ought to behave. And let's pursue it. Let's make it a priority to go after celebrating difference in and amongst the people of God. And then the third principle, briefly, as I come to a close, the third principle, Christ's unifying example. Look at chapter 15. We who are strong, remember this is probably the majority crowd, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Maybe they haven't got all their I's dotted and their T's crossed. Let's bear with their failings and not please ourselves. Each of us, verse 2, should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Why? Why? The gospel is renewing our minds. Look at verse 3. Even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So what was Jesus willing to be willing to see happen to himself? He was willing to be wronged that you might be put in a right relationship with God. He was willing to suffer insult. He was willing to suffer disgrace. He was willing to be stripped naked and crucified on a cross. A man who had never sinned or done anything wrong. And he did it for you. I would rather be wronged that you might be in a right relationship with God. And if that's the gospel, don't you mind being wronged sometimes? Or being accepting, okay, I think I'm right on this one, but I'm just going to let it go doesn't matter does it if you look what jesus let go for me even to death on a cross and think about that if you're a student and you're involved in a christian union and there's a wide diversity of different positions on things in cu life have you always got to be right no the unity of the gospel the glory of god through the unity of the gospel comes ahead of all of that just be ready to to let that one go Because Jesus was ready to give up so much for you. We don't please ourselves. We please our neighbor because Christ didn't please himself. And let's make that our governing priority. So what are we seeing in this section of Romans from chapters 12 to 16? This is what we're seeing. The gospel asks more of you than you think. 
you've got to be an everything Christian. And that's big, and it's hard, and sometimes you think you've got it worked out, and sometimes you don't. The gospel's asking more of you than you think. But it's supplying more than you need. The gospel's always giving you the answer for how to do it. It's asking more than you think, but supplying more than you need. And that's the wonderful thing. Being a Christian isn't easy or obvious always. But if your mind is renewed by the gospel, you will be able to work it out. And so with verse 7 of chapter 15, Paul gets to where he started. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. The gospel is able to do something that the world cannot do. To reconcile and bring people together in a real, vibrant, loving community. And it's our privilege and opportunity to show that to the world. For the glory of God and that others might see it and think, wow, I want the world to look like that. And I see it here in the church. Let's pray. Father, in a world that's so divided, where we seem to be getting more entrenched and more angry with each other, particularly at an election time, we thank you for the unity of the church. Thank you that we are one family in Christ. And although that is not always easy, thank you for showing that the gospel supplies more than we need to help us live this way. Help us to prefer one another's interest as Christ has shown us through his perfect example on the cross. And may the world see how good it is when God's people live in harmony together. Amen.